Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Would it be all right if I sang y'all a song? I, uh, I have permission from Alan to do one song per calendar year during a sermon, and I'm song-free in 2019, so I thought today um, might be a time. It's going to be a little awkward because I'm going to do an acapella, and I'm not going to sing the whole song. I'm just going to sing eight lines, um, but I don't have an instrument to hold or anything. But it's a song that's probably familiar to many of you. It goes like this. Tell me something, girl. Are you happy in this modern world? Or do you need more? Is there something else you're searching for? And tell me something, boy. Aren't you tired of trying to fill that void? Or do you need more? Ain't it hard keeping it so hardcore? Ever since that song came out last year, it's just been stuck in my head. And I'm convinced that it's as much about the lyrics as it is the melody. Are you happy? Do you need more? Is there something else you're searching for? You know, the reality is that for a lot of us, every single day of our life, we wake up searching for something that we're missing. It's like life is one big treasure hunt. And the author of most of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, he knew that this was our human plight. So he began the second chapter of his letter to a little church in a town called Colossae this way. We just read it. Here it is, Colossians 2, 1 through 3. I want you to know how hard I am fighting for you. My goal is that you would be encouraged in heart and united in love so that you may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that you may know the mystery of God, Christ Jesus, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's how we as your pastors here at Redeemer approach this sacred privilege of getting to preach the word of God to you every Sunday. We want you to know how hard that we are fighting for you, for your hearts and for your minds, so that we all may have a deeper understanding of the mystery of God and the matchless treasure that we have in Jesus. Isn't it true that every one of us often feels like we need something or someone other than Jesus in order to be fulfilled in life, in order to be happy, in order to be at peace? The Apostle Paul makes it clear that all the true treasures of the world are found in one place, in one person, and that's Jesus Christ. Think for a moment, what besides Jesus do you need in order to be happy? Is it working for you? Before we look at the text in Colossians 2, I'd love to lead us in just a short time of prayer, and I'm going to read just three sentences and I want you to just silently repeat them if you'd be willing to. Just silently in your chair by yourself, ask the Lord to speak to you today. So if you would, bow your heads. Just silently repeat this prayer between you and God. Father God, would you give me a deeper understanding of the treasure I have in your son, Jesus? 
Holy Spirit, would you make known to me more of the mystery of God? Brother Jesus, would you reveal your love for me today? Amen. Andrew, I'm getting a little feedback up here. If you could cut that down a little. In Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church that's located in the southeastern part of the country that we now know as Turkey. And he longs to be with these people. He longs to be with this church. You know, he's planted all these churches and he wants to be with them, but he can't. And he can't because he's locked up. And he's locked up in prison because he's given his allegiance to the person of Jesus instead of the government. Yet even still, Paul continues to pastor these people through these letters. And reading his letters as a pastor in 2019 is really convicting because Paul's words are razor-focused on the person of Christ. That is his passion. But in reading them, I've been convicted that I have dozens of conversations with dozens of you every week. And so many of our conversations involve the details of church or growing an organization or the minutia of the things that have to be done. Yes, but I just realized there are a lot of weeks that I get through these conversations and I've not even talked to many people about how amazing it is that we have the treasure of Jesus Christ. Paul is so convinced in the beauty of Jesus that that is his sole focus. That is the thing he cares about more than anything. He wants the church to know how amazing Jesus is. Lord, have mercy on me and have mercy on us as a church. May we be a church that is more captivated by Jesus than we are by the success of our organization. Lord, help us. Last week, Hunter preached from Luke chapter 10 in the account of Mary and Martha. And Mary sat at Jesus' feet and Martha was busy cooking. And Jesus asked, Martha, why are you so distracted? Why are you so anxious? One thing is necessary. Come be with me. It made me think about when I was 10 and my dad was teaching me to play golf and teaching me to swing a golf club. And for those of you who are golfers in the room, you know the phrase that my dad repeated to me more than any other phrase and that I hate to hear in my head to this day because I kept missing the ball. Every time I would swing, he would say, Drew, keep your head down. Keep your eyes on the ball. And I would try to keep my eyes focused on the ball, but I so wanted to look at where it was going to go if a miracle happened and actually actually hit the ball instead of shanking it into the woods. I wanted to see where it was going, so I'd pull my head up, and then because of that, I would miss the ball. So what did my dad do? He did a trick that's been done by golfers for ages. He said, take your head cover off your driver and put it where? Under your chin, right? And then this will hold your head down. Do not drop this until you've come through your swing. So then I had to swing, and then I was able to drop it. And then most of the time, that worked. I was able to keep my eye on the ball because of the head cover. In much the same way that Hunter described the distractions of our phone last Sunday... Paul was writing these people 2,000 years ago who struggled with distractions. And Paul was telling them about the treasure of Christ and how much better Christ was than anything else. He was saying, keep your eyes focused on Jesus. So here's my question for you. What is vying for your attention these days? Is it money or success? Man, it, it, I, got, I got caught way off guard when I turned 40. Two years ago, I, I just felt like, I don't know, for some reason I felt like I need to make more money and be more successful in life. I, before that, in my 30s, I was just kind of going along, having fun, like life, life's good. But then all of a sudden, like, the midlife crisis came, and I'm like, 
so focused on money and success, way more than I ever thought I would be. I was like, I saw people who struggle with that, and I was like, man, those poor people, that's not me. And yet, it started happening to me two years ago, and, and I know every morning when I wake up and how many times I check my bank account during the day and different things, what is like vying for my attention is money and success, popularity and acceptance, security, power, pleasure, comfort. What are you placing your hope in? Every other treasure that attracts our attention is one that we must strive to achieve, to grab. We've got to get it. We've got to make it happen ourselves. They're treasures that we get out of our own efforts. But if you skip down to Colossians 2, verse 6, Paul makes it clear that Christ isn't something we achieve, but someone we receive. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Just as you received Christ as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. In the Greek language, this word receive is in the indicative mood. It's a statement of fact. We can't achieve Christ. We receive Christ. It's one of the reasons... In a moment when we have our Eucharist service that we'll ask you to come down and we'll say, please make a plate with your hands. Don't grab the bread. Don't take it, but make a plate with your hands and receive it. Because Christ is a gift that has been given to us, not one that we can achieve. And Paul's going to help us understand later in the passage more of how that actually happens. If you're here this morning and you have been a receiver of the gift of Christ, Paul invites you. You who are in Christ to continue to live your lives in Christ. That's what he writes in verse 6. But that verse is better translated to actually walk around with Jesus. Now, some of you are here this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus. And we are really thankful that you're here. But this part of Paul's letter to the Colossians is going to sound quite humorous to you. Because there's this guy in jail and he's writing a letter to a group of people encouraging them to walk around with someone they cannot see. Let me explain a little more of what that looks like for those of us who walk around with Jesus. You know, a lot has been written throughout history on the different spiritual practices that help us do this. Things like practicing the Sabbath, fasting, confession, prayer, scripture reading, study, solitude. There are dozens of spiritual practices that recenter us on Christ in a world that is full of distractions. They're much like the head cover under my chin. They help us keep our eyes on the ball and our eyes focused on the treasure of Christ. Who we believe is the one that has resurrected from the dead. So he's still alive. So we believe that we actually walk around with him, even though we can't see him. But spiritual practices aren't magic tricks that make Jesus appear. By themselves, they can do absolutely nothing. They can only get us to a place where something can be done. The transformation that needs to happen is a work that God does. It's something we receive, not achieve. On Friday this week, I got to go over to visit with my friend and mentor, a guy named Phil Anderson, who's been a spiritual mentor of mine for 20 years, and he's a man that really walks around with Jesus. And just sitting in his presence, I feel like, man, this guy listens to the Lord. I, you know, I ask him a question, and he often just closes his eyes and doesn't respond for like one or two awkward minutes. And I'm just sitting there, and I'm like, what is, is he falling asleep? I mean, he's a little bit older than me. I know you get tired when you get older. I didn't, you know, but he... Then he opens his eyes, and he never gives me the answer that I wanted to hear. 
You know, he always just points it right back to Jesus. And I'm like, no, 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 give me something practical, brother. And he just points it back to Jesus. And I love this metaphor that he uses to illustrate the idea of being transformed by God through spiritual practices. He says that the spiritual disciplines are a lot like working on your tan. That there's work for us to do, but the work is mainly about positioning ourselves in a place where God can do the work. I mean, I've never gotten a tan, so I don't know what this is like, but <laughs> getting a tan requires you to position yourself under the sun, and then you let the sun do the work. In the same way, spiritual practices are about us positioning ourselves in God's presence so we're walking around with Jesus so he can transform us. What these ancient practices do is they fix our gaze on Christ, and they root us on what is true and not on what is fleeting. When's the last time that you put your normal schedule on hold so that you could walk around with Jesus. Our calendars reveal our treasures. What would it look like for you in this next month to block off a chunk of time, maybe even a whole day, and say, I'm going to spend a day alone walking around with Jesus? You know, if you're musical or you're literary or you're political or you're sports hero, contacted you and you got an email or Instagram message or a phone call that said, hey, you've won a contest and you get to spend all day with this person, your hero. Would you not rearrange your calendar in order to get to be with them and to ask them questions? The God of the universe has given us that invitation. He longs to be with us. But there are thousands of distractions that make it difficult for us to walk around with Jesus. One of my favorite games that we play at youth group, we haven't done it in a while, but at Young Life, is this game called the, the Hermit Crab Hunt. And uh, what you do is you wait till the summertime when hermit crabs are cheap, you go down to the beach, you buy a bunch of hermit crabs, you buy a little plastic aquarium for five bucks, and you bring them back home, and then you set up your youth room, and you say, all right, everybody, you get to the sides of the room, we're going to take four people and set them up here. And then we're going to take all the hermit crabs and set them all across the middle of the room. And then we're going to put the aquarium over there. And you've got to walk to the aquarium without stepping on a hermit crab. The only catch is that you're blindfolded. And so then we blindfold the people. And they've got to walk across the room. Now, Noah West, if you're here, don't worry. No hermit crabs are injured during this game. I love you. <laughs> what you do, and this is a youth ministry secret, so please promise not to share this outside of this room. Please delete this from the audio file. Um, you replace the hermit crabs with Fritos. A lot of Fritos, a whole lot of Fritos. It's really funny. And everybody's, you know, when they put their blindfold on, you, you secretly do it. And then you tell all the crowd who stay on the sides to direct their path. You, know, you tell them which way to go. And you're like, hey, this is your team of 10 people. Listen to them. This is your team of 10 people. Listen to them. And everybody's yelling at you, go right, go left, no, no, no. And the people are stepping on Fritos and screaming and girls are crying. And it is hilarious. It is amazing. It's really hard to figure out which way to go to not step on the hermit crab when everybody is yelling at you, go this way, don't, no, no, stop. And that is exactly how it is in our world today. Is we have so many voices yelling at us, this is true. No, no, listen to this. That is wrong. How can, can you believe that they believe that? There are so many voices yelling at us. How do we know who to listen to? Well, Paul knew that this is this age-old struggle. And so in verse 8, listen to what he writes. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow 
and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Eugene Peterson translates it this way in the message. Everything of God gets expressed in Jesus so you can see and hear God clearly. You don't need a telescope, a microscope, or a horoscope to realize the fullness of Christ and the emptiness of the universe without him. Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. He's not saying all philosophy is bad. He's saying hollow and deceptive philosophy will try and take you captive. And he uses this language, this intense language of a hostage or a kidnapping, like guarding our minds and hearts. Think about the popular philosophies that our world speaks to us every day. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Individual freedom and happiness is the highest good. There's these constant false promises that take us captive and never fulfill their promises. But it's not just typical worldly philosophies. We as a church have a tendency to fall into our own set of deceptive ideas. Ideas like the ultimate goal of life, yeah, that's to get married and have kids, have a job, send your kids to college, and then your kids do that again. If you don't get married or have kids, then your life isn't as full as it should be. That's a lie that a lot of times we foster even in the church. Here's another one. Not in God we trust, but in the government we trust. Because our only hope is our politicians saving us and not God. God only helps those who help themselves. i got to work harder so I can achieve God's favor. If I obey God, then in turn I should get health and wealth. Why did this happen to me, this bad thing? Because I have obeyed God. We believe these lies. Or even in denominational thinking. The temptation is to believe that all other denominations, they are they're sadly deceived. We're the enlightened ones. We've got it figured out. And as a result, the church is the most divided group of people in the world. What philosophies have taken you captive? Do you recognize how dangerous they are to you? The best way to prepare for the danger of getting sucked into believing things that actually hurt us is for us to be grounded in the basics of our faith in Christ and to understand the significance of his death and resurrection and the significance of our baptism and what that means for our relationship with him. It's one of the reasons our church is really weird. And we have an 18-month process before you become a member here. You go through the Discovering Redeemer class and the Anglican Way class, and you go through a year-long catechumenate class, and people are like, what in the world is going on with this church? We are so convinced that we live in a world that is teaching us a lot of things that's hard to know what is true and what is not true. And so we want to spend intentional time together talking about these things and understanding what it means to be rooted firmly in Christ Jesus and in the truth of his word. Paul knows that when we listen to the screams of the world, it is really hard to hear the whisper of Jesus. Let's continue in verse 9 and 10. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. What does it mean when Paul says, in Christ, we've been brought to fullness? It makes me think of John 10.10. Some of you know it. The thief comes to steal, kill, and to destroy. But Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. Right. Here's a real question that we all face. 
If I'm supposed to be full in Christ, why do I still feel so empty? You know, in my early years of youth ministry, I would talk about John 10, 10 all the time, and I would talk about our brokenness and how nothing can fill us but Christ. And many of you have heard people say, you know, there's this God-shaped vacuum in your life that Pascal said that only God could fill. There's a hole in your life that only he could fill. And what I'd do is I'd take these plastic, like, water pitchers, and I'd poke holes in them, and then I would, you know, hold it up here, and I'd take a cup of water that had, like, the word sex on it or something, and I'd be like, we pour this in here trying to fill up our life, but it runs right out, you know, and then I'd put, like, drugs and then rock and roll, you know, and pour it in. I'm not that old to do that, but I would do... Similar things like that, you know, and pour in there. And I'd be like, look, it all runs out. You know, we're broken. You know, we're trying to fill our life with these things. And, and it just, it doesn't work. And then I would get a really long hose and a few different hoses and connect them to some spigot in the house or the room or somewhere. And then I'd stick the hose in there. I'd be like, Jesus is the living water. And he fills us up and it never runs out. He never runs out. You know, and I mean, it's a pretty good illustration. But the reality is it made me feel like a hypocrite. Because I thought I had the living water. But there were sure as heck a lot of days when I didn't feel full. There were a lot of days when I felt like my pitcher was empty. And even now, you know, on Sunday morning we come and we make that plate with our hands and we, we eat the bread and we drink the wine and we feel no fuller. Some of us, some of us experience Christ's presence there in a way that we can tangibly experience with our human senses. But for a lot of you, my guess is that you, you eat and you drink and you feel no different. It's not a feeling that you experience a lot of times. And for a while, I thought, man, I must be doing something wrong. I mean, there are times when I feel the presence of God, like when I'm at Camp Booyah, you know, and everybody's raising their hands and we're singing, set a fire down. You know, you get the goosebumps, you know, and you feel it and you're like equating goosebumps with Jesus all of a sudden, you know. And when I'm holding my newborn baby niece yesterday, you know, I feel like, oh, God is so good. You know, God is so good. Or when I'm watching a sunset over the lake, you know, God is so good. But then there are so many days when I just don't feel that. And I'm like, wait a second. Is that what it means to feel full of God? And I just thought for a while, I, w- I must not be doing enough spiritual practices. I must not be trying harder. I, I, I got to do more. I got to do more. But then I read Mother Teresa's biography. And in it was a letter she wrote in 1979 to a pastor that she considered one of her spiritual confidants. She wrote about how for 30 years, she never once felt God or heard God. And that she never felt full. But she still kept walking around with Jesus. Here's what she wrote to the pastor. Jesus has a special love for you. But as for me, the silence and emptiness is so great. It is so great that I look And I do not see. I listen and I do not hear. My tongue moves to speak in prayer, but it says nothing. In one sense, reading that was really depressing because I'm like, man, if Mother Teresa doesn't feel full, like how can I ever expect to? But in another sense, it was freeing for me because the way that she lived her life gave me some sort of permission to walk in this holy discontentment. And a longing for more of God. And it made me realize that I often falsely equate goosebumps with feeling full of God. I was listening to a conversation this week between my friends Annie and Chris. And she asked him a pretty deep question. And she said, what does it sound like when you hear God? And Chris is a godly man. And I was really struck by his response. And he said, I don't hear God. 
He said, I've never felt his presence in any of my human senses, but I still know he's always near. If I need the goosebumps to keep my faith going, it's not really faith. It's like I'm needing something outside of my faith. Whether I feel it or not, I live in the truth of the gospel. And then she said, well, if you don't hear him, how do you experience him? And then he said, I don't know if experience is the right word. He said, Jesus isn't an experience for me. He is the foundation of everything. It's kind of like if you ask me, how do you experience the ground? How did you experience the ground today? Well, I, I didn't experience it. I mean, I was constantly on it. But it was the understood. I didn't need to go, where are you ground? Okay, feel for it. It was there. There's a trust that was already there. We often equate moods with feeling God. Like if I'm crying, you think God is there, but you don't need that feeling to make him real. He is real. Now, I know that God has wired us all differently, and I am probably the biggest feeler in this room. You know, like I want to feel. But my guess is there are a lot of people in this room who would agree with Mother Teresa and my friend Chris and say, you know what, I've never felt God in my human senses. And you know what, if that's you, you're okay. Jesus didn't say, you will feel me with you always. He said, lo, I am with you always. Paul began this chapter by saying that my goal is that you would know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. But often, we want confidence instead of mystery. Faith is us seeking the treasure even when our human senses are filled with doubt. But then, Drew, that, that leaves me asking, will we ever really fully know the fullness of God? Paul answers that question in a letter he wrote to a church in the town of Ephesus. In Ephesians 2, 4, and 7, he writes, Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions, in order that in the coming ages he might show his incomparable riches of grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. Paul is saying, in Christ you have been brought to fullness, but your earthly bodies cannot hold the fullness of God. It is going to take years, decades, even eternity, before you can fully comprehend the depth and riches of Jesus Christ. I want to feel and experience that now. And my longing should lead me to a place of prayer and begging God for those things. I want to keep praying like, Lord, I want every day to feel like a day at camp. Lord, I want my neighbors, I want to pray for them and them to actually meet Jesus. Lord, I want to pray for people who are sick and them to be healed. That's what I want to experience on this earth. And we get glimpses of God's miracles happening all the time. But God has more for us that is coming in the coming ages. And he is bringing his kingdom fully to earth. But he is saying, even when it doesn't happen, even when you don't feel it on this earth, remember the words that Judson preached a couple weeks ago. That faith and love spring from hope. The hope that we have in Christ. And then in verse 11, Paul gets to the good part. And he clarifies why we can have this hope in Christ. Even when our circumstances don't make us feel that way. Verse 11, in Christ you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self that was ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. 
And then he says, having been buried with Christ in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised Jesus from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. So why can we have hope? Because of Christ's death and his resurrection. In verse 11, Paul uses circumcision to point to Christ's death and the cross. And then in verse 12, he uses baptism to point to Christ's resurrection. Under the law, Jews were required on the eighth day to circumcise their baby boys. This was a sign of membership into the family of God or the covenant nation of Israel. But Paul writes, now in Christ, you have been circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands and a knife. How were we circumcised with Christ? Because on the cross, Jesus endured his very flesh being stripped for us. Christ's flesh was ripped off his body so that we no longer had to go through that physical circumcision. Christ's death became the payment for our sin. How do we treasure Christ? We treasure Christ by recognizing what big a deal it is that Jesus went to the cross for us and that he bore the punishment that we deserve for our sin. And that because his flesh was torn, we can be entering into the family of God. Think about the things that we treasure. They will never die for us. Only Jesus. So Paul teaches we are circumcised through Jesus' death on the cross. And because of that, we no longer need that physical circumcision. But there's a new sign of entrance into the Christian community. And from the earliest days of the church, baptism has been the new sign of that covenant. And Paul writes in verse 12, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. In baptism, God reveals his power to overcome death through Jesus' resurrection. And that same power becomes available to all those who put their trust in Christ. In a couple weeks, right here, we're going to have a baptism service. And if you have not been baptized, it is a powerful entrance into the kingdom of God. And we want to celebrate with you. So please talk to us. We'd love to share with you more about it. Paul writes, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. Verse 13. Who made you alive? God did. The new life is received by us, not achieved by us. It was achieved by the one who lived a perfect life and defeated death when he rose from the grave victoriously. And if Jesus is resurrected, then we can be content and confident no matter what our circumstances. No matter whether we feel full of God or not. Because we know no matter what we are going through, if Jesus defeated death, he can make all things new. He can make us alive with Christ. Y'all, Jesus did not die so that we would be a church of good, moral people. He didn't die so that we would be nice, upright citizens. He didn't die so that we could have a goose-filled, goosebump-filled experience on Sunday mornings and be members of a Christian country club. He died so that we may be fully alive in him. So how do we live as people who are fully alive? By treasuring Christ. And the key to treasuring Christ is worship. When we worship God, when we focus on Jesus, we focus our entire hearts, minds, and bodies on what Christ accomplished on the cross. It takes our eyes off of those distractions. It takes our eyes off of ourselves. 
And through worship, we say, Jesus, you are more valuable than anything else in my life. Through worship, we forsake our own accomplishments and our own achievements, and we reflect on what Christ achieved on the cross. And through worship, we reject the power of our daily circumstances to determine our joy and our peace, and we rejoice in the hope we have because of Christ and because Christ will come again. Do you treasure Jesus? I want to close by giving you one practical way that you can treasure Christ this week. One simple way to worship. We began with a song, and we're going to end with a song, but we're not going to sing this one. It's a famous song that Paul wrote in the preceding chapter in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. It's one of the most famous songs written in all of Scripture. And I don't know a tune for it, but if you're musical, maybe this week you write a tune for it. But as you walk around with Jesus this week, what would it look like for you to consider writing the words of Colossians 1, 15 through 20 on an index card and taking them with you and hiding it in your heart and memorizing it and saying, Jesus, you are my treasure. I want to focus on you and how good you are because you are worth so much more than anything else. And I want to worship you. Don't just look at it on our phone because we all know what distractions come with our phone. But focus on the person of Jesus. Ask God to turn your eyes and your mind and your heart and your entire body to focus on Jesus and to treasure in Christ. I'd love to close by reading this as our prayer if you would bow your heads with me. This is Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Jesus received this as our act of worship to you. You are the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. In you, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through you and for you. You are before all things, and in you, all things hold together. And you are the head of the body, the church. You are the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything you might have all supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in you, and through you to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through your blood shed for us on the cross. Jesus, you are our treasure. We worship you. Amen.